In the grip of an unrelenting craving, the man's thoughts race like a desperate sprinter, each step leading him closer to his next fix. His back throbs, a relentless reminder of the injury that set him on this perilous path. As he manoeuvres through the shadows, his mind drifts back to the moments that paved the way to his current predicament. The memory surfaces, a vivid recollection of the day he first hurt his back. A simple misstep, a sharp twinge, and suddenly his world tilted on its axis. Pain radiated from his spine like a wildfire, consuming his every thought. Doctor's visits followed, a series of consultations that offered glimpses of hope but no lasting relief. Frustration took root as his mobility diminished. Normalcy slipped through his fingers, replaced by days confined to a couch and nights spent tossing and turning in agony. Amid the darkness, a glimmer of relief emerged in the form of a prescription bottle. Oxycontin, the doctor called it, a lifeline that promised respite from the torment. The pills worked their magic, dulling the pain and ushering in a sense of tranquility he hadn't known for months. But as days turned into weeks, he began to sense a subtle shift. The pills, once a balm, became a necessity, an essential part of his day just to keep the pain at bay. The lines blurred between medicating and depending. Now in the present, as he inches closer to his next dose, he's acutely aware of the gnawing emptiness that follows each high. His reliances escalated, transforming his quest for relief into a desperate hunt for escape. Hello listeners and welcome to Bloom and Gloom. The story you just heard is one of many hundreds of thousands around the world. But today we are in the US of A. We are in places you would expect and some you wouldn't. We're behind desks at Fortune 500 companies and we're behind the dumpster in an alley. Today we're talking about the opioid crisis. This is the epidemic of pain management advancing into dependence and escape turning into confinement. Over half a million people lost their lives as the result of opioid overdoses in the USA between 1999 and 2019. In 2019 alone, there were almost 50,000 opioid overdoses. The same year, an estimated 9.7 million people in the USA reported misusing prescription opioids. The evolution from the morphine and opium poppies to super strong synthetic opioids like oxycodone and fentanyl played a big role in increasing the number of deaths associated with opioid use and misuse. Most of the people who've died were between the ages of 25 and 34, and there were places that were particularly badly affected by this, like Appalachia, where opioids ruined thousands of lives and tore apart countless families. When people began seeking answers, truth and transparency about how this was allowed to snowball into the social catastrophe it became, Legal proceedings were brought against a number of companies for their part in this epidemic. Today, we're going to be talking specifically about the Johnson & Johnson subsidiary Janssen Pharmaceuticals for their marketing of the drug Duragesic, which is fentanyl, and of course, Purdue Pharma for their infamous cock-up of OxyContin. But first, I feel like it's difficult to talk about the opioid crisis without explaining and discussing a bit about big pharmaceutical companies themselves or the so-called conspiracy of Big Pharma. 
So the conspiracy is that large conglomerate pharmaceutical companies engage in unethical or secretive practices that prioritise profit over the well-being of the public. This conspiracy theory suggests that these companies deliberately suppress or manipulate information, influence medical research and guidelines, and control healthcare systems to maximise their financial gains. To which I say, is it a conspiracy theory or an allegation if some of these claims have been proven in court, either by settlement and admission of fault or by criminal and civil litigation? One of the major claims is that pharmaceutical companies suppress or hide potential cures for disease in order to continue profiting from ongoing treatments. This idea often arises in the context of chronic illnesses like cancer or autoimmune diseases. Additionally, these companies are said to wield undue influence over medical research and clinical trials, potentially leading to biased results that favour their products. The fear is that research outcomes might be manipulated to present drugs in the best possible light. The parts that are most relevant for today are that these companies use aggressive marketing tactics to create demand for their products, targeting both patients and healthcare providers. I'm talking about where doctors receive kickbacks for prescribing certain medications or numbers of medications, influencing doctors to over-prescribe. One thing that's awful about that is that it leads to unnecessary and potentially harmful medical treatments. Not to mention that in a place like the US with no free healthcare, it can and does completely bankrupt people. The other thing is that there is the potential for conflict of interest when researchers, doctors and healthcare professionals have financial ties to pharmaceutical companies. The concern here is that these financial relationships could compromise the objectivity of medical decisions. The pharmaceutical industry is, of course, subject to regulatory oversight and scrutiny from government agencies, ethics boards and other healthcare professionals. Instances of unethical behaviour are often met with legal consequences. However, in certain cases, the argument against this is that the regulatory body or whatever agency it is, is corrupted in some way or, as we briefly discussed, by virtue of conflict of interest. So while this is all pushed in the media as a conspiracy, let's have a look at some concrete facts. And this goes back quite a ways to the 90s and early 2000s, which seems to me like yesterday, but apparently isn't. So the withdrawal of the painkiller Vioxx in 2004 raised concerns about the pharmaceutical industry's transparency and ethical practices. It was revealed that Merck, the manufacturer of Vioxx, had knowledge of the drug's potential cardiovascular risks but continued marketing it without adequate warnings. This controversy led to lawsuits and a significant impact on public trust. In 2009, Eli Lilly settled a case involving the antipsychotic drug Zyprexa. The company agreed to pay $1.42 billion to resolve allegations of off-label marketing promotion. This included promoting the drug for uses that weren't approved by the FDA, like treatment of dementia. In 2012, GlaxoSmithKline, or GSK, agreed to pay $3 billion to settle a case involving allegations of off-label promotion, failure to report safety data, and paying kickbacks to doctors. This case also involved the diabetes drug, Avandia, which is another one that faced controversy over its potential cardiovascular risks. This case marked one of the largest healthcare fraud settlements in US history. Another example of the conspiracy behind Big Pharma being founded in fact 
was Johnson & Johnson faced legal action related to its antipsychotic drug, Risperdal. In 2013, the company agreed to pay over $2.2 billion to settle charges of improper marketing. One of the significant allegations related to Risperdal involved the marketing of the drug for the treatment of behavioural symptoms in elderly patients with dementia. It was not approved by this use for the FDA and was allegedly being marketed to nursing homes and doctors as a way to manage agitation and aggression. Risperdal was also promoted for use in children and adolescents with behavioural disorders, such as ADHD and autism spectrum disorder. Long story short, there was a lack of sufficient evidence to support the safety and efficacy of using these drugs for these populations. I could continue and provide a multitude more examples of these, but the point is, it's not so much of a conspiracy when many of the claims have been verified in court. When it comes to the opioid crisis, these claims are particularly relevant. Let's go over what it is and how it all began. I feel like there are two points in history with the opioid epidemic. There's the before time, as in before OxyContin, and then there's after. Before the introduction of OxyContin, opioid use in the United States was primarily centred around natural opioids like morphine and heroin, which, as we discussed last episode, had been used for pain relief and recreational purposes for decades. To give a quick recap, these drugs were derived from opium poppies and had been utilised in medical settings for their pain-relieving properties. Morphine was isolated from opium and its potential for addiction and abuse was recognised a long time ago. Heroin was synthesised from morphine in the late 19th century and was initially marketed as a non-addictive substitute for morphine, but was eventually found to be even more addictive. Throughout the 20th century, opioids continued to be a concern due to their addictive nature. While medical professionals recognised the efficacy of opioids in managing pain, the risks of addiction and misuse were also acknowledged. Regulatory measures were put in place to control their availability and medical education was emphasised. However, opioid misuse and addiction remained a significant societal issue. The 1960s and 70s saw a pretty big rise in heroin use, particularly among urban populations, which led to public health concerns. In response, methadone maintenance programs were introduced as a harm reduction strategy to manage this heroin addiction. Then, in the late 1990s, the landscape of opioid use began to change with the introduction of OxyContin by Purdue Pharma. It was first introduced by the US Food and Drug Administration in 1995 and was designed to provide long-lasting pain relief for patients suffering from chronic pain conditions. Now, just in case you haven't listened to the last episode, the active ingredient in OxyContin is oxycodone, which is a very potent opioid analgesic that's derived from thebane, a natural alkaloid found in the opium poppy. The thing about OxyContin, though, is that Purdue formulated it to have a controlled release mechanism, allowing it to be released slowly into the bloodstream over about a 12-hour period. This feature was intended to provide consistent pain relief, making it a suitable option for patients who needed around-the-clock medication. Now, this information is from a pharmaceutical sales rep, but apparently OxyContin was also created because the patent on Purdue's slow-release technology, that being the content part of the brand, was expiring. That meant that other companies would then be able to utilise it in their own products. 
The way to get around that was to renew the technology on a different drug. So at the time, it was being used for MS content, which is morphine sulfate, continuous delivery or slow release. So they applied that same technology to oxycodone and voila, patent renewed. The slow release thing is great because it helps to reduce the frequent dosing associated with opiates, usual short duration of action. The other commercial reason for OxyContin's invention was that it represented a business opportunity for Purdue. The company saw a potentially lucrative market for a new type of opioid painkiller that could be prescribed for a wide range of conditions, not just cancer-related pain. Purdue Pharma heavily marketed OxyContin to doctors and healthcare providers promoting its effectiveness in treating different types of pain. Unfortunately, the marketing of OxyContin was accompanied by aggressive tactics that downplayed the risks of addiction and misuse associated with opioids. Purdue Pharma's marketing campaign claimed that the controlled release formulation of OxyContin made it less likely to be abused or lead to addiction, which of course turned out to be misleading at best. This deceptive marketing contributed to the rapid spread of opioid prescriptions and ultimately the opioid epidemic that followed. As misuse and addiction of OxyContin and other opioids escalated, concerns grew about the role of pharmaceutical companies in promoting these drugs. Purdue faced legal challenges and public backlash for their marketing practices, and in 2007, Purdue Pharma and three of its top executives pleaded guilty to federal charges of misleading the public about OxyContin's addictive potential and agreed to pay a settlement of $634.5 million. The thing is, it sounds like a lot, it sounds like a harsh penalty, until you hear that their annual revenue is $3 billion. $634 is peanuts to these guys, and that's why prosecution has been trying to target the individual executives that pull the trigger on these marketing campaigns and allegedly collude with entities like the FDA. Previously, that was pretty unheard of. Some of the people involved, of course, are the owners of Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family. And we're going to get into a little bit about them because they're so strange. They're a very odd bunch. So the family is of Eastern European Jewish descent and fled from that war-torn area to the US in the early 1900s. Brothers Arthur Mortimer and Raymond Sackler were all well-known psychiatrists and Arthur actually was the first doctor to ever use ultrasound for diagnosis. In the 1950s, they began acquiring shares in a company called the Purdue Frederick Company. Eventually, they had a significant ownership stake but they also use their finances for substantial philanthropic donations to places like the Sackler Gallery, Sackler Museum, and the Sackler Centre for Arts Education. These all obviously and subsequently now bear the family name. They also endow several professorships and financially support medical research. Today, Arthur's daughter Elizabeth continues the tradition overseeing the Elizabeth A. Sackler Centre for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum. Raymond's sons, Richard and Jonathan, established a professorship at Yale Cancer Centre and Mortimer's daughter, Marissa, founded B-Space, a non-profit incubator for organisations like the Malala Fund for Girls' Education. 
the Sacklers are now among America's wealthiest families, with a net worth of around $13 billion. But the origin of the family's wealth pre-Purdue still remains somewhat ambiguous, and their determination in procuring more of this wealth was one of the driving factors in this entire mess. In fact, even the donations themselves were allegedly kind of a tax dodge. What they would do, allegedly, is semi-donate a bunch of artefacts that Arthur Sackler would have purchased in the early 1920s to a museum. The museum would pay him the price he initially paid in the 20s, which was much below market value, so seen as a donation. But then for the write-off, he would declare the donation at the current market value, which would have been the price in the 1950s or 60s. So he was making profit on these donations. Arthur Sackler in particular was instrumental in using innovative yet morally questionable marketing strategies to promote pharmaceutical products, including diazepam, also known as Valium. Diazepam is a benzodiazepine that was originally introduced in the 1960s by a company called Hoffman LaRoche. It was marketed as an effective treatment for anxiety, muscle spasms, and a few other conditions, and it has sedative and calming effects, which made it a popular choice among medical professionals for managing a range of psychological and physical symptoms. I usually see it today commonly charted in hospital for sleep or alcohol withdrawal. So Sackler recognised the potential of direct-to-consumer advertising to boost pharmaceutical sales. In collaboration with the developers of diazepam, he devised the marketing campaigns that aimed to basically destigmatize anxiety and promoted Valium as a solution for everyday stress. They utilized TV and print media to reach a wide audience, which effectively turned Valium into a household name. It even became known as Mother's Little Helper, if you've ever heard that, because of its association with stressed out stay-at-home mums. So with this widened variety of indications and consumers, of course, it did a great deal for Purdue financially. Arthur's brothers pretty much ran the company as Arthur focused on the marketing of their products. When he passed away eventually in 1987, his last words now, looking back, are a little bit of an infamous mockery because they were, leave the world a better place than how you found it. A lot of the information for this next part of the episode is from statnews.com, who did such a great job with this, you guys, like real actual journalism. They went through a four-year legal battle with Purdue to get access to court documents from the proceedings, so I will provide a link to the articles in the show notes. Here's a bit of a summary of what they contained. So in January 1997, just a year after OxyContin's launch, Merck Medco, a major pharmacy benefit manager, expressed concerns that OxyContin could lead to abuse. This worried Purdue Pharma because obviously it jeopardised their strategy to tap into the non-cancer pain market. Richard Sackler suggested that executives market to doctors that controlled release products like OxyContin were less prone to addiction and abuse than other opioid pain pills. A lot of this centred around some of the fine print that was allowed to be included in OxyContin's packaging. This stated, Delayed absorption is believed to reduce abuse liability of the drug. In the show Painkiller on Netflix, there's a big focus on this because, like everyone says, is believed by who? 
that is not evidence-based. It's not clear-cut medical information. In fact, it was approved by the FDA and specifically by a guy called Curtis Wright, who was eventually hired by Purdue Pharma. There was also a study that went along with this that declared that the rate of addiction was less than 1%. It later came out that this apparent study was literally just a letter to the editor in a medical journal. Richard Sackler, Raymond's son, is the one on Painkiller who is most prominently portrayed. He was the head of marketing and something else at Purdue Pharma, and he really carried on and built upon the sales tactics and the culture that Arthur Sackler had initiated at the company. In the show, you also see through the eyes of a Purdue sales rep. Obviously, there's a lot of creative license, but it is 100% true that at the time, Purdue sales reps were told to promote the drug as less addictive or prone to abuse. Which, let me be clear, it is not. In fact, I would argue that OxyContin in the early days actually had more of a risk of abuse because of the massive dosages they were handing out, like 40, 60, 80 milligram tablets. And this was approved by the FDA under the guise of the slow-release formula. But, of course, if you crush a slow-release medication, it might as well be immediate release because it's the layered external coating that comes off and dissolves over time that creates the delayed release. So if you break that, you're essentially getting the entire dose as fast as your body's able to absorb it. In the Purdue trial in Kentucky, there were several memos from sales reps about how doctors they were selling to were concerned about OxyContin's abuse and how these reps responded in terms of trying to change their mind and increase prescription levels. They pretty much all include a note about how the doctors were concerned about addiction levels with OxyContin and how they had been persuaded by various sales tactics to prescribe it regardless. These over 1,000 pages of documents from Kentucky court records lay out how eventually it led to a guilty plea in 2007 for deceptive marketing practices. Despite growing reports of diversion, addiction problems, and overdoses linked to OxyContin, and this is between 1999 and 2001, Purdue continued to focus on expanding its sales even as the opioid crisis began to really escalate. Stout's pursuit of these sealed documents started in 2016, and their release came at a pivotal time because Purdue and the Sackler family faced opposition from several states and entities regarding a settlement. Under this settlement, the Sacklers were supposed to have contributed $3 billion, sell another family-owned drug company, and relinquish control of Purdue Pharma. The Sackler family's direct involvement in Purdue's business decisions is pretty evident from these documents, especially Richard Sackler. He advocated for countering concerns about OxyContin's strength and worked to maintain a close relationship with medical organisations, shaping the treatment guidelines. His emails were pretty damning in showing how they were omitting important information from doctors and not correcting misbeliefs. Sackler's active role also extended to countering the perception that OxyContin had a ceiling effect in treating cancer pain. There's now something like 2,000 ongoing cases against Purdue Pharma, and they really, so far, have strongly managed to avoid admitting culpability or accepting blame in these cases. The actions of Purdue Pharma, even to this day, are pretty adamant that they do not believe they are at fault at all for this epidemic. In a conversation between PBS journalist William Brangham and NPR journal Brian Mann, they discussed a recent development where the Supreme Court temporarily blocked a bankruptcy plan for Purdue. 
This plan aimed to provide billions of dollars to address the opioid crisis while shielding the Sacklers from legal liability. The US Justice Department argued that this plan would set a precedent for wealthy individuals and corporations to use bankruptcy to evade accountability. This delay means that at least $6 billion in relief for communities affected by addiction and overdoses is currently on hold. It was kind of a surprise move by the Supreme Court to take on this issue, and I think their movement on it is really about the concern that the abuse of bankruptcy laws could become a trend, which would allow non-bankrupt entities to limit their liability while still paying large sums. Legal experts and the Department of Justice raised these concerns, which prompted the court's decision to review the case in December 2022. It's kind of a hard one because, on one hand, there is a desire to hold the Sackler family accountable for their alleged role in the opioid epidemic. But on the other hand, these communities and states really desperately need the funds promised by the bankruptcy, and they're planning to use it to address addiction and overdose issues, obviously, which are economically crippling a lot of places. The delay in the plan's execution has created frustration among these communities who are really torn because they need the money, but they also want the Sacklers to have some kind of accountability. So Purdue obviously has been in the media a lot for their part in this epidemic, but fentanyl is also kind of a buzzword in this too. It's much more potent than oxycodone, and there's another big case around this medication that you don't really hear about, and that is the state of Oklahoma versus Johnson & Johnson subsidiary Janssen Pharmaceuticals. In Oklahoma, a judge ruled that Johnson & Johnson intentionally minimised the dangers and exaggerated the benefits of opioids, sounding pretty familiar. The state went into the case seeking $17 billion in damages to address addiction treatment, drug courts and related services that were needed over the next two decades to combat the opioid epidemic. The Judge Thad Bulkman of Cleveland County District Court strongly criticised Johnson & Johnson for its role in the opioid crisis. He stated that the company had conducted false, misleading and dangerous marketing campaigns that had led to a surge in addiction, overdose deaths, and cases of babies born exposed to opioids. I've never personally seen that, and I really hope I don't ever. It's honestly one of the main reasons I never considered going into midwifery, is just the social issues around babies. It's just so sad. Anyway, so Johnson & Johnson had supplied a significant portion of the opioid ingredients used by pharmaceutical companies, and vigorously promoted opioids as safe and effective to both doctors and patients. I do want to put a little disclaimer in here that opioids are a really great tool when they're used correctly. They just need to be used with moderation and caution in mind and adequate risk assessment. I'm not against opioids, but their appropriate regulation and use is really important and you can't market them like a normal good. It's not a jet ski. This is medication that we're talking about. It's so wild. As an Australian, I can't believe that I think it's New Zealand and the US have these kind of marketing for medications. Anyway, I digress. So the pharmaceutical giant was ordered to pay $572 million to the state of Oklahoma. Obviously, this is a lot less than the $17 billion that they asked for, but it did mark the first trial of its kind to hold a drug manufacturer responsible for the destruction caused by prescription painkillers. The amount was said to cover the expenses required to address the opioid crisis in the state for a single year, 
and the verdict offered encouragement to lawyers representing various states and cities involved in over 2,000 pending lawsuits against opioid manufacturers. The ruling stated that Johnson & Johnson breached Oklahoma's public nuisance law, which was a pivotal aspect of the judgment because usually that can only be used for land and property cases. Johnson & Johnson planned to appeal the decision, maintaining that it was not responsible for the opioid epidemic. This is the official statement from Johnson & Johnson on the whole thing. Janssen did not cause the opioid crisis in Oklahoma, and neither the facts nor the law support this outcome. We recognise the opioid crisis is a tremendously complex public health issue, and we have deep sympathy for everyone affected. We are working with partners to find ways to help those in need. When I think of Big Pharma, the first company I think of, honestly, is Johnson & Johnson. They are just massive, and Dojisic is just the tip of the iceberg. If you haven't listened to the podcast Verified, they've got a season called Dust Up, and that's all about how baby powder had freaking asbestos in it up until the 1970s. And Johnson & Johnson knew for at least 20 years and didn't care that it caused all sorts of cancers. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Sorry this episode was such a long time coming. If you liked it, feel free to rate and subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok or send me an email at bloomandgloompod at gmail.com. Have a gloomy day.